would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. We're going to look at the entire chapter this evening. It's just eight verses long. In just a minute, I'll read the passages we normally do, and then I'm going to pray. Um, And during the prayer, uh, I'm going to be praying as well for our brothers and sisters in Christ over at Autumn Ridge Church. Uh, You may know that they, this weekend, of all weekends with the snow and everything going on, uh, they're in the process of calling a new pastor, and uh, they're doing that this weekend. And uh, we want to pray for them as they seek uh, the Lord's leading for Pastor Rick Henderson, uh, who very well uh, likely will be the next pastor there. So uh, let me read the passage and then we'll pray like we normally do. But I'm going to include prayers for Autumn Ridge as they continue uh, to seek the Lord's will with this very uh, significant weekend uh, that they have in the life of their church. So let's listen to God's word from Revelation 15. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, indeed, your deeds, your works are great and amazing. We are thankful to be able to read of them in your word. And so we pray that as we come to this portion of your word tonight, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Speak to us through it by the work of your spirit, we pray. Send us out as people who are filled with hope, who are filled with strength and encouragement, that as we go out this week, we might delight in being your people and living as you've called us to live. Our Father, we also think of our brothers and sisters in Christ at Autumn Ridge Church this weekend, and we thank you that even in the midst of this storm, they've been able to gather together in this candidating weekend for Pastor Henderson, and we pray that you would continue to confirm his call in that place. Would you make it abundantly clear to all of them, and would you encourage them with how you're at work in their midst? 
We pray for your will to be done there. And we pray for Autumn Ridge Church. We pray for our church. We pray for all of your churches in the city and in southeastern Minnesota that we would be beacons of your light and truth and that you would glorify your name through us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a doozy of a week. And I don't just mean today. Today in and of itself has thrown us enough of a curveball. Uh, but uh, it's been a kind of an up and down week for myself. And it's been one of those weeks that, I don't know if you're, you're like me, but when the week gets changed, the schedule gets changed, the plan gets changed, it just kind of drives me nuts. I woke up this past Monday morning with the flu. And uh, first I thought maybe it was just going to be a cold, uh, but as it went along, it was obviously more than that. And I uh, was off my feet for most of the week uh, and uh, preparing for today as I could. And, uh, and then everything happening this morning and just the whole week has just kind of been discombobulated. And it's one of those kind of weeks where it's just been outside of my control and it drives me nuts. And I don't know if you can relate to that or not. I don't mind having a period of time when I'm just relaxing and not doing anything uh, productive. Uh, vacation is one of those kind of time periods. Uh, I enjoy that. But when the week isn't a vacation week and it doesn't go as planned, it just really bothers me. Now, you might wonder why. And those that know me best might suggest that it has something to do with my need for control. And perhaps there's some degree of truth to that. But I think there's a bigger reason involved. I think it's something we can all relate to, and that's that we like clarity. We like to know what's going to happen. We like to know how things are going to unfold. We like to know what the plan is, even if it's a small plan, even if it's a plan just for a, a small period of time. We like to know because we like to have clarity. We like to know what to expect. This letter that we're looking at, the, look, the, the book of Revelation, is a letter that was given to God's people in the first century to help them that they might know what to expect, that, that they might know what was planned by God himself, to have clarity about what the Christian life is going to look like until Jesus comes back again, and what it's going to look like when he does come back. It's not meant to be a confusing letter. It's not meant to be a letter that's hard to understand. It was written originally for these people and for us as God's people today to be an encouragement, to be a source of strength and hope and blessing for us as God's people. It's meant to help us to trust the Lord in even greater ways, especially in the midst of trials and difficulties, and even persecution. Now, before we jump into chapter 15, let's remind ourselves of just a couple of the principles that we've talked about that help us understand this letter's perspective. This letter was not written to give us a chapter-by-chapter chapter chronological line of history uh, leading up to the end times. Instead, what we've been seeing as an inner study is that it's actually made up of a number of cycles that usually revolve around the number seven, that number that's often used in Revelation and other places in Scripture to, to point to the number of perfection and completion. 
And we've looked at these various cycles, uh, four of them already in the book of Revelation, uh, most of them giving us a picture of what is happening in the time frame between when Jesus came the first time, his first advent, his incarnation, and when he comes for his second advent, his second coming. And each of these cycles that we've gone through already in the first 14 chapters uh, give us a picture, maybe from a little bit of a different perspective, again and again and again, of mostly that same time period, giving us perspective of what it looks like for life on earth and what it looks like from heaven's perspective and what it looks like uh, that's going on behind the spiritual curtain, behind the, 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 on the cosmic battlefield of the spiritual realms. We've talked about the fact that in Revelation there's lots of symbolism, there are a lot of metaphors that are used throughout the book. Part of the reason for that was for the protection of the recipients in case the letter would fall into hands that were not sympathetic to Christianity. But it's also partly John receiving these visions and trying to describe in human terms what he's seeing and what he's experiencing as he gets to see these wonderful visions in the first century. As we've been moving along through Revelation, we've been seeing things get more and more intense. If you remember back when we were looking at the seven seal judgments, we were told there that they affected 25% of the world. If you remember shortly thereafter, we read about the seven trumpet judgments and we read about them affecting a third of the world. Now we're coming to the seven bowls. And we'll see not only today, but in two weeks when we come back to look at chapter 16, that when these bowls are poured out, it is God's wrath that's being poured out on the totality of creation. So we see this this wonderful progression that's happening in Revelation. And I don't want us to lose sight of the overall purpose. It is to let God's people know what to expect, to know the plan And for that plan and to know what to expect would be a source of hope and strength for us. And it's also a letter that is to be a source of warning for those who are not believers, those who are not in relationship with Jesus Christ. The end is coming. And so the call is to turn to the Lord and put your faith in him before it's too late. Today, I want us just to see two things in particular. I want us to see this picture that John gives us of sovereign judgment that comes from God Almighty. And then I also want us to see this other picture that he gets right in the midst of this picture of the sovereign judgment of God. We get this picture of a song of jubilee, of celebration that is being sung. So I want us to look at those two things that in some ways may seem like uh, opposites and yet we'll see that there is much overlap between the two of them. And then we'll finish by reflecting on what all this means for us. So first of all, the picture that we get of God's sovereign judgment. Now, just a quick comment about the structure of how 15, chapter 15 is set up. You'll notice that we begin in verse 1 where John is getting another vision, a sign, another sign in heaven, a great and amazing sign. And he begins to see it. It's these seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them. The wrath of God is finished. And then we get verses two through four, which is kind of a pause or an interlude, which is where we get the song that's going to be sung. 
And then we come back in verses 5 through 8 and we see the rest of this judgment vision that John gets with these angels, with these plagues, and eventually they're given bowls. So it's, it's verse 1. Then there's the interlude of verses 2 through 4 with the song. And then we get the rest of the story about these angels and the judgment of God being poured out. So first of all, when is all of this happening? Well, as we saw with the seven seals and the seven trumpets, again, here we are getting a picture of God's judgment being poured out primarily between the advents, between the first and the second advent of Jesus. As the seal judgment and the trumpet judgments are ignored by the world, God turns up the intensity with these bold judgments giving us another perspective of His judgment that is being poured out during this time period on all evil and wickedness. But also with these bowls, we see that we're getting closer. There's a closer connection with the end of history. I mean, notice in verses 1 and 8, kind of as bookends in both verse 1 and 8, we're told that it's the last and with it, the wrath of God is finished. And so even as we're reading about the time frame between the advents, we're also recognizing we're getting closer and closer to the end of history, to the end of time. So we're getting a description of the judgment between the advents, but also sensing that the end is coming soon. So what is the judgment that we read about in chapter 15? We're actually not going to get the details of those judgments of the bowls until chapter 16. When we come in two weeks to chapter 16, we're going to see how these bold judgments in many ways mimic the plagues that went against Egypt as God was leading his people out. There's a reference here to Moses and a reference also to the Red Sea that we'll look at in just a moment. But I want us to see here with what we do have and kind of this prelude to these seven bold judgments that we'll read about in chapter 16. This prelude that we have in verse 1 and verses 5 through 8 gives us a fairly clear picture of something in particular. And that is this. God is in charge. You see that in verses 5 through 8 in particular. John has given this vision, this picture of heaven. And the description that he is giving of what he sees takes us back to the Old Testament days of the tabernacle. Just look at some of the way that he describes what he sees. It's the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven that is being opened. It reminds us of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And we see these angels that come out of the sanctuary and notice that they're dressed and he's told specifically how they're dressed. He sees how they're dressed and the dress that they have on is almost as if they were dressed as priests coming out of the sanctuary of the tabernacle. We see these angels who are being sent out from the throne of God with these seven plagues of judgment. We also read about these four living creatures that must be there. These heavenly beings that we heard about in chapters 4 and 5. And we're told that one of them hands out bowls of God's judgment, God's wrath, to these angels. And then we also read that the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory and the power of God. Again, it's this picture of the glory cloud of God's presence descending as in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, 
And it's so powerful, it is so overwhelming that we read that not even the sinless angels could enter the sanctuary until God's work of judgment is finished. The whole picture of what we're getting here in these verses is pointing to this big, obvious truth. God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is in control. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he will not and he cannot tolerate sin and unrighteousness and injustice forever. In fact, he has a plan to address it. He has a plan to bring it to an end. And as we see the sovereignty of God, as we see the power of God, as we see the God who is in control of all of this, it reminds us that our God is a faithful God as well. God is making good on his covenant promise that he made in the Garden of Eden. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise to Adam and Eve and to the serpent himself, the dragon, Satan, that he would crush him. That he would destroy him. That the head of the serpent would be crushed. And now we're seeing this truth beginning to unfold. It's a reminder to us of the unity of the entirety of the scriptures. They are all pointing to the the sovereignty of God and his faithfulness to his covenant promises. Even when it seems otherwise to us. We know that God is sovereignly And faithfully at work, bringing an end to evil and bringing a completion to his most perfect plan. So this first picture that we get in Revelation 15 is of the sovereign creator, redeemer, judge of the universe, pouring out his judgment on evil and righteousness, unrighteousness. But there is this other picture that we get in this interim time period, this interlude in verses two through four. He begins to see the vision of God's sovereign power and faithfulness in the judgments that are going to be poured out. And then he saw something in the midst of that. Verses 2 and following. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, And the song of the Lamb. As John was seeing this vision of God's sovereign judgment being depicted, he saw something else that was taking place. He sees a song of jubilee, a song of celebration that is being sung. He is seeing worship that is taking place with heavenly harps of God playing and voices that are singing out. You may remember as we looked at the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments earlier, there also with them were pauses and interludes before we got to the the final trumpet and the final seal. And here again we have this pause in the midst of these bold judgments. I just want to point out to you that isn't that interesting that God reveals it to John that way. And I can't help but think that that's a reminder to us as God's people of his mercy. Of his goodness in the midst of these horrible judgments, in the midst of the reminder of God's, uh, God's sovereignty and his power and his overcoming the evil one and, and dealing with the evil and, and injustice in this world. He pauses for a moment to give us as God's people a picture of what is true of us, even that's happening in heaven at the very moment when John is seeing this. And what does he see? Well, he sees 
somebody's singing. Who is it that he sees that is singing? We see it in verse 2. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. It's referring back to chapters 12 through 14. If you were with us then, we, we saw this picture of the Lamb, Jesus Himself, and His 144,000 people. Again, a symbolic number of all of God's people throughout history who are safe and secure in heaven after they had conquered the dragons and the beasts through the power of God. And so what John is seeing here in chapter 15, verse 2, is God's people who have overcome the evil one through the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice where they are. We read at the end of verse 2 that they are standing beside, or actually it's a better translation, standing on the sea of glass. It's the same sea of glass that we saw back in chapter 4, verse 6. The sea of glass that's described in the throne room of heaven. And we talked about, as we looked at chapter 4 a number of months ago, we talked about how the sea in the Bible often is used to describe or is, is used as an illustration of powers of chaos and evil that are rising up against God. And both in chapter 4 and in chapter 15 here, what kind of sea do we see? It is a sea that is still. It is a sea like it is, that is like glass that can be stood upon by the people of God. And we're going to see in just a moment that Moses is mentioned. And so I can't help but think that as we, <coughs> excuse me, as we see this sea, we're also to be reminded of that Red Sea episode that we read in Exodus of God bringing his people safely through the Red Sea, safely through that which would pursue and destroy God's people. He, he redeems them, he saves them, and he keeps them safe. And so here we get this picture of God's people standing on the sea of glass that, has been, that is mingled with fire as they have come through many fiery trials and now they are safe in heaven. This picture of who we see singing is a picture of God's people, triumphant and victorious, safe and secure. And just like the people of the Old Testament who crossed the Red Sea, who began to sing the song of Moses, so too these saints are singing. And what are they singing about? Well, you see the song, kind of the halfway through verse 3 through verse 4. I want you to see that there are at least five different things about God that they're singing about here. The first thing that they're singing about is about the faithfulness of God. What kind of song is it? It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Isn't that an interesting way to describe it? The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is a reference to Exodus chapter 15. It's an actual song that Moses and the people of God sang as they crossed the Red Sea. Perhaps later tonight as you're putting your head to the pillow, you can open up your Bibles and read that wonderful song that, that, that Moses sang. It's a song of focusing on the, the goodness and the faithfulness and the power of God. How he was faithful in bringing his people safely across safely out of Egypt and safely through the Red Sea. But it's not just the song of Moses that these wonderful people of God in heaven are singing that we see in verses 3 and 4. It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. 
You'll remember back in chapters 4 and 5, we we saw the song of the Lamb. We heard the song of the Lamb being sung. It was a song focused on Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. His work of redemption. His work of conquering Satan and the beasts and evil and sin and death itself. These people are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And by referencing the song of Moses and the song of Jesus, it's again pointing to uh, pointing us to the fact that God is faithful to his covenant promises. The song in the Old Testament, the song in the New Testament. It's one big, glorious, true story of the scriptures from the beginning to the end. The story of God's pursuit of his people. His redemption of his people, his rescuing and keeping safe of his people. The Old Testament and the New Testament are unified in the message of the good news of the gospel. God is faithful to the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. He has been working out that promise through the beginning of through the first advent of the son of God. And it will be consummated in his second advent when Jesus comes again. And here we have this picture of the people of God singing of the faithfulness of the Lord. He is faithful to his covenant promises. And he always has been and he always will be. The second thing that they're singing about here is God's sovereignty. You can see that in verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. We've talked about this before in Revelation. It showed up before. Uh, the Almighty is a very specific word. The Pantocrator. It is the ruler of all. It is the one who controls all things. It is the one who is sovereign. And isn't that what we're told anyway in the passage? His deeds, his works, his actions are great and amazing, we're told. The word amazing means wonderful, astonishing, glorious, excellent, Extraordinary. They take your breath away. It makes us think about the work of God's creation. Some of you have been trained in medicine and you have the privilege of learning about the intricacies of the human body. And you could tell us the stories of the wonders of God's creation, of how wonderful the created body is. But we can all look out and we can see God's creation. We can see the flowers. We can see the animals. We can see all of God's creation. And we can just be in awe and wonder as we dig in and try to unpeel the layers of the intricacies of the creation that God has blessed us with. But it's not just as we meditate on the creation that God has done, but on the redemption that he has accomplished. Who could have thought of any kind of plan like this? That God himself would come into this world to fix the problem that we created. That it would take nothing less than the Son of God to come and to live a life of perfect love and obedience that we should have lived. And then to give his life as a sacrifice The death that we deserve to die. Who could have thought of that? This wonderful plan of redemption shows us the sovereignty of this Lord God, the Almighty. They're singing of his faithfulness. They're singing of his sovereignty, but they're also singing about his justice and truth. Again, in verse three, 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. God's ways are just and true. He always does what is absolutely right, what is righteous, what is equitable. His ways are always the right ways. They are always the true ways. There is no falsity. There is nothing wrong in Him. And then He connects it with this idea that He is the King of the nations. It's a reminder to us that the justice and truth of God will ultimately prevail. No matter how bad this world may seem, at any point before Jesus comes back, We have the promise that his justice and his truth will prevail because he's the king of the nations. He will make it so. They're singing of his faithfulness. They're singing of his sovereignty. They're singing of his justice and truth. They're also singing of his holiness. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All will fear and glorify the name of the Lord because he alone is holy. Holy is what God is. It is His very essence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is nothing wrong. There is no sin. There is nothing that is incomplete that is in Him. He alone is holy. No one or no thing is like Him in His holiness. And as a result of His holiness, we're told that all people will fear and be in awe And wonder and glorify the Lord. They're singing about the faithfulness of the Lord. They're singing of the sovereignty of God. They're singing of His justice and truth. They're singing about His holiness. And notice also they are singing about God's great plan. The end of verse 4 we read that all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. God's righteous acts have been revealed. The word revealed means declared, made known, displayed, and brought to light. These people, God's people, are singing about God's great plan of creation and redemption. God's work of creating worshipers such that the nations will come and worship Him. It's a refrain that we've heard frequently in Revelation and throughout the Bible. That people from every tribe and language and people and nation will gather together in the throne room of heaven and sing praises to God for all eternity. Right now, things may not seem that clear to us. We may not understand what God's doing. We might have to sing with Paul in Romans chapter 11 where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Things may happen to us and things may be happening around us that we don't understand and that we can't explain. And we may not be able to see or to understand how God is at work in some situation. But what this passage tells us is that we know that one day all of God's righteous acts will be revealed. All of God's righteous acts will be known and displayed. And as a result, the nations will come and worship the Lord. And this causes God's people to sing. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this today? 
Well, two things. One for anybody who might be here this evening that's not a believer. The message of the entire book of Revelation, and again, we've seen it here in Revelation 15, is this. God wins. He is in control, and God wins. The all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present, sovereign creator and judge of the universe is in control, and He wins. Whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not, a day is coming when we will be called to face Him, to appear before His throne, and to give an account for our lives, an account for all the ways that we have sinned, in the ways that we have not done what God has called us to do, the ways that we've sinned by doing the things that He's told us not to do. And if we're not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that at that very moment, we will be called to pay for our own sins for all eternity. Eternal and complete wrath and judgment of God will be poured out against all those who are not in Christ. And as we're going to see next time in Revelation 16, these bold judgments that are poured out will make the plagues against Egypt pale in comparison. The end is sure and certain. God wins. The so what for those who are here this evening who are not Christians is to turn to God today. It is not too late. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to the Lord. Believe in Him and trust in the message of the gospel of grace. When you die... Or if Jesus returns at that moment, it's too late. But tonight, it is not too late. Respond to the gospel and once put your heart and hope in Christ Jesus himself. What's the takeaway for those who are in Christ here this evening? Well, it's the same message. The all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present, sovereign creator and judge of the universe is in control and he wins. And that means that as God's people, we should never lose hope. We should not lose hope because God is faithful to his covenant promises. He is the God of the song of Moses and he is the God of the song of the Lamb. He made a promise to his people all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And he has been faithfully and sovereignly working out his promises ever since. We're meant to see his faithful and his patient and his steadfast pursuit of his people throughout Scripture. We're meant to see the same song that is being sung by God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament and God's people throughout church history and even God's people in heaven itself singing the same story, the same song of God's sovereign faithfulness to his people. And so we don't lose hope. Even in the midst of a world in our lives which so often seem out of control. When the circumstances of our life become what we, beyond what we think we can imagine and, and deal with. When we turn on the news and we see world events going on that seem so far out of our grasp and so far out of our control. When we look around and we see broken relationships all around us. When we have a lack of clarity about our own future. 
when we are dealing with unfulfilled desires that we have in ourselves. We don't lose hope. Because even in the midst of a world in our own lives which seems so out of control, we serve a God who is in control. And we serve a God who wins and who is faithful to His people. So we don't lose hope. We also don't lose hope even in the midst of the battle that we have against our own sin. Perhaps it seems unending. Perhaps it feels like there is slow or no progress as we seek to fight and to lean against our sin. Perhaps it feels like it's an always an uphill battle. But we know the end of the story. God is at work in us through His Holy Spirit and He is forming us and He is pruning us and He is shaping us. And one day our battle with our sin will be no more. It will be over. But until that day, we don't lose hope. We don't give up. We keep fighting and we keep leaning against our sin because God wins. We don't lose hope even in the midst of seeing people that we love People that we care for who are not believers in Christ. We have the promise that God is the one who is at work bringing the nations into a relationship with himself. As we long, as long as our loved ones are still drawing breath, there is always hope. Don't grow weary or give up on witnessing the gospel in word and deed to your friends and to your family. Don't give up in praying for the Lord to regenerate their hearts and to open their eyes to see the truth and rest in His hope and the promise that it doesn't depend upon you. It is the work of a sovereign and faithful God. So we don't lose hope. As this great song in Revelation 15 reminds us, we may not see and we may not understand everything now that's happening. But one day we will. One day God's righteous acts will be revealed and made known and we will understand. One day we will see what God has been doing and we'll understand. John Flavel was a 17th century British Presbyterian pastor. And I couldn't track down what reference, uh, what book it was in. But one of the books that he wrote, uh, he has this little statement. It goes like this. Sometimes providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. You know about Hebrew, right? The Hebrew language is read from right to left. So it's read, from our perspective, it's read backwards. So what Flavel is saying is that Often, God's providences, like the Hebrew alphabet, have to be read backwards. That's what this passage is telling us. His righteous acts will be revealed. One day, we will be able to stand and we'll be able to see what God has been doing throughout all history. And we'll be able to track it all the way back to creation itself. We may not see it now. We may not understand what God is doing, but we know that God is at work. He is sovereign. He is faithful. And so we must trust Him. So Christians, do not lose hope. Meditate on the Lord's faithfulness to His promises, His sovereignty, His truth and justice, His holiness, His great and perfect plan. And as we do that, we'll trust in the Lord anew.
and we'll commit ourselves to following him in his ways. Let's pray together. Father, as I look out and I see all of these faces, I I know the stories. I know the stories of how there's so much going on in our lives that we don't understand. We can't see how you're at work in our midst. We're prone to doubt. We're prone to, to lose hope. So we pray, Father, that as we meditate on your word, and particularly this evening, Revelation 15, as we join our voices to sing together this wonderful hymn, that your people in heaven at this very moment and throughout redemptive history and for all eternity will be singing. I pray that you would fill us with hope, that you would fill us with strength, that we would trust in you, our sovereign and faithful God. Would you do this, Father, for your glory and for the building up of your church and for the good of your people? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read an account of Jesus gathering his disciples together to institute what became known as the Lord's Supper. And Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you hang around Presbyterian and Reformed churches very long, you'll hear us talk about the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And what we mean by that is that it is indeed a remembrance. We, we come and we remember. We remember the Lord's body given for us and His blood that was shed for us. It points us to the cross. It points us to His life of perfect love and obedience, of His sacrifice, giving His life over on the cross that He might pay for the sins of His people and establish righteousness for them as it's credited to them through Christ's righteousness. But we also believe that as we come to this table, it's not just a remembrance, it's also a spiritual nourishment. That as we come in faith, believing and trusting in God, trusting in Christ for our salvation, that the Holy Spirit is at work, strengthening us spiritually as we eat and as we drink. Reminding us of all of the benefits that we have as believers, as God's beloved children. So if you're here this evening and you are a beloved child of God, you are one who has made a profession of faith in Christ Jesus, you are professing an allegiance to Him, a trust in Him, that you look to Him for your salvation. If you've publicly professed that faith here at Trinity or another church that believes that the Word of God is authoritative, that it is the Word of God, that the gospel is by grace alone, through Christ alone, Then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink and be reminded and be encouraged, be filled with hope that as you come in faith, the Holy Spirit is at work strengthening us, filling us with the hope that we need that we might live for our great God this week ahead. But if that's not you this evening, then we would ask you to allow the elements to pass you by. There are some prayers printed for you on page 15 in the bulletin that you can use. 
during the time that we are partaking in the Lord's Supper. Let's pause for a moment and let's thank the Lord for giving us this wonderful covenant meal. Our Father, we do thank you for this means of grace, a way that you remind us of the truth of the gospel once again, a way that you spiritually feed us and nourish us. Help us, Father, to be reminded of your incredible faithfulness, your steadfast and patient love and pursuit of your people. We pray that as we meditate on that, you would fill us with hope. Hope to stand in the midst of difficult times and difficult circumstances with our faith anchored in Christ and Christ alone. Would you do this, Father, for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.